Welcome to Bespin Ice Cream Stand. My name is Josh O'Rourke, and with me as always, why did you think he chose the hardest location to find in the entire galaxy? He came to this island to die, Bennett Campbell Ferguson. <laughs> yes, that's right. And by the way, I did not, I repeat, did not leave a trail of breadcrumbs and order R2-D2 to magically activate, activate and provide the last clue to a map so that I could be found. That was... That was just all a dream or something. I don't know what to tell you. I, I was reading like fan theories last night about this movie, and someone said that uh, the next, you know, episode nine should have been Finn waking up from a coma and being like, oh, it was all a dream. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that would have flowed in so well. I, I would I would understand why some people would want that, but then at the same time, that would mean the Praetorian Guard fight was a dream too, and I would have a hard time with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to get into it right away and just say out of four stars, I give it one and a half. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious what you have to say, but but uh, I'll say there's two camps of everyone I've talked to, people who love and people who hate the movie. Uh, I suspect you're somewhere in the middle, though, in that I think there's really great moments and really terrible moments. So I'm curious what, what you rated it first. Yeah, you're absolutely right about there's these two camps. Definitely, the it seems to be there's a lot of extremes. Like, it's either people say, it's the best, it's even better than A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back, or people are like, this is the worst thing that ever happened to Star Wars. And, I <laughs> and they admit, both have the same voice. <laughs> they do, they really do. I, I do confess to, to being in the middle so for me, I think there are things in this movie that are substantially better than in The Force Awakens. I also think there are things in this movie that are substantially worse than in The Force Awakens. So for me, it averages out to about the same. So I gave Force Awakens two and a half stars. I will also give this film two and a half stars. I understand the mm. one and a half star rating, though, because, I mean, let's face it. There's some truly, truly horrendous things that... I, I mean for me it, it all comes down to ryan johnson was trying to subvert a ton of star wars stuff but he didn't nail it and he didn't do it for the right reasons and i'll get into that later but um it, it feels like ryan johnson's trying to make a movie that's sort of almost independent of the trilogy um and he threw out a lot of force awakens stuff and he didn't address certain things and and he killed off characters just so he doesn't have to explain it. Um, but I'll get into that later, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, Ryan Johnson's an interesting case because the whole sort of ethos of his career is like subverting like old myths, basically. In that Brick is kind of subverting the tropes of film noir by, you know, bringing it into a very unfamiliar setting, a California high school. Uh, the Brothers Bloom is is very much a, a twist on the, the con artist movie. And then you have Looper, which is a, a really, really kind of odd tinkering with the Terminator formula. It's it's sort of like Terminator, I, I guess, if, if Kyle Reese were evil. You know, maybe I, I don't know, but I, I'm no, not, no, I I'm not a big Looper fan. I am a big fan of Brick and, and Knives Out, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of the subversion falls flat. And to a certain extent, I, I almost disagree with the whole idea of subversion and Star Wars, because I feel like if you're so focused on subverting tropes, you're still kind of married to those tropes. And I would have liked to see him, you know, break away completely yeah, like make something wholly new, not just, hey, remember this? I'm doing the opposite. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, we'll talk about this. I, I am a fan of the idea that, you know, Ray's parents were no one. But at the same time, I'm also like, why does there have to be a revelation about her parentage at all? Why couldn't that just right. not be an issue? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was a big deal in Force Awakens. So, like, it needed to be addressed at some point. Yeah, yeah. But it, I don't know. I don't like the way it kind of plays out in this one. Um, and also, my, my biggest problem... Okay, I have, I have a bunch of big biggest problems, but one of my top ten, for sure, is that I feel like Ryan Johnson is trying too hard to bring comedy to Star Wars. 
Like he, he mentions in some interview that it was so dark he needed to have like levity. But I feel like the tone is really strange. It's sort of winking and nodding at the audience. Like that opening scene with Finn and Poe. No, or with, with Hux and Finn, rather. It's just played for laughs. And I, I think it sort of negates the characters, uh, especially Hux, who like up to this point is like he's almost like a like a Nazi um, leader. You know, and he has that huge speech, you know, to all the bad guys in Force Awakens. And and he seems to be just like crushing it the whole movie in Force Awakens as far as moving on up, you know, in the hierarchy or whatever. And immediately he's just, you know, sort of pushed aside for comedy. And I don't like that. Yeah. I mean, let's go deep on the, the comedy, because I think that is one of the most controversial elements of the movie. And I want to address like why some people defend it, too. Because a lot of people will say, oh, you don't like the comedy in The Last Jedi? What's your problem? There was tons of comedy in the uh, original trilogy. But my issue is less with the fact that there is comedy and more with the quality of the comedy. Because to me, there's, there's two kinds of jokes. There's a joke that rises very organically from the situation at hand. And then there's a joke that's kind of inorganically absurded just to sort of you know break up the dramatic tension for laughs will somebody get this walking carpet out of my way is is a very kind of you know natural expression of exasperation you know you you believe that that's what leia would say in this moment well it's character driven uh character driven comedy instead of just we need to have laughs i'm sorry go ahead exactly whereas you know luke in the middle of his you know showdown with the AT-ATs the end of the last Jedi doing the, the brush off of his sh shoulder. Like that is just <laughs> this completely out of character thing. That's just jammed in there to be like, we had some big serious stuff and surprise something funny. You know, it just, it's so like embarrassing and awkward and weird. Like just no, no Ryan. No, <laughs> no, definitely. Um, I really want to get into Luke right inside him like a tauntaun. But before we do that, um, yeah, but as far as comedy goes, it's it's not organic and it's not derived from the characters. It's it's in the script because Ryan Johnson wanted to have comedy, but it just it feels like uh, some people said like the opening scene feels like an SNL skit. Like it, <laughs> it just has the complete wrong tone. Yeah, you can have moments of funniness in the Star Wars galaxy. That's not exactly my point. It's just. Um, It doesn't land in, in this movie because it's so consistently tonally wrong. Yeah. I think the issue, too, is just there are a lot of instances in this movie where you could, I think, save a scene by cutting something out. Like, for instance, the whole, like, Finn leaking bag joke. Like, to me, that is just, just so weird and awkward because my attitude is why does Finn waking up from a coma have to be funny at all why can't he just wake up from a coma like why does everything <laughs> kind of have to be you know sort of like, mishandled and mismanaged into comedy i don't know it's, it's yeah weird. no it's it sort of it, in the same way that every character has some sort of cynicism or not every character but quite a few um it seems like um every character has to have some element of snark as well and yeah. to me, it just it it sort of rings. It it sort of feels like uh like an eighth grader writing a script, uh, where the worldview is just so evident. You can completely tell this is the work of of uh, a cynical individual, in in my opinion. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like you you go from The Empire Strikes Back, where where Yoda has like a real sense of mischief and then you then back in the prequels all of a sudden he's just this very kind of bland serene character with, with none of the trace of the the humor or the rambunctiousness i feel like the with last jedi in the original trilogy kind of goes in the opposite direction with luke where he was very straight-laced in the original trilogy and then all of a sudden like over a couple decades he's turned into this prankster like the scene where he sort of you know hits 
ray on the hand with that you know little leaf stick thingy to me that's just like that is just not luke like it's mark hamill playing him but i still feel like it's just some completely different character you know yeah it reads like fan fiction where you uh where you're like yeah i guess i could see that but no that's not what he would do yeah um yeah let's get into luke i think that's really the center of the whole issue of the movie for me because if you get luke skywalker wrong you're getting everything else wrong in the movie yeah and i get like it's subversive to use the word again to to make luke this cynical asshole in the same way that kind of han uh basically went back to his old ways, you know, and, and all the things that were wrong with him, you know, as a person. But I feel like Ryan, Ju- Ryan Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really feel like Ryan Johnson failed in, in that he didn't understand the character of Luke at all. Like, 30 years has passed, sure, but it, to me it seems really reductive to make it where Luke Skywalker, this bastion of hope, uh, for the rebels and for the world, or you know, for the Star Wars galaxy, they can't start a Jedi Academy without failing. And then his one failure makes him so cynical about the Jedi that he goes off to an island to die. I, I think if it would have been fine, I don't even mind if he's that way if the movie justified his actions. But it just was sort of like, well, obviously he's going to be a cynical asshole because time passed. That's how it feels to me. Am I off base there? No, you're not, at least not from my perspective. I mean, I want to look at this from a a couple different angles because, honestly, I've had this argument a lot over the years. I've, I've argued with, you know, people about this because it's, you know, to me, the thing that the movie gets the most wrong, the thing that in me the most the thing that i'm the most passionate about because having you know grown up you know worshiping luke you know it's very very hard to see him in such a, a kind of psychologically wounded state and to see him so out of character so the argument i always make to people is i say that luke skywalker is the most idealistic character in star wars luke is so idealistic that he looked at Darth Vader, a a genocidal maniac, and said, I believe there's still good in him. And then uh, not only did he pursue that belief, but that belief was ultimately rewarded because, you know, Vader turned back to the light side at the end of his life and proved him right. And so I always say to people, you know, who defend Luke in The Last Jedi, that it's just beyond absurd to say that a guy that idealistic would, uh, one contemplate killing a sleeping child even for a minute and then two like basically decide that his the best way he can serve the galaxy is to do nothing and just wait to die it's just such an extreme transformation i I do believe that you know to a certain extent ryan johnson didn't understand the character but you know the i think frankly reasonable counter argument to that is that trauma can really change a person you know luke has been through a lot of trauma by the end of the last jedi you know he lost his you know whole training temple he's seen the the rise of a new version of the empire he's been through a lot and that can reshape a person so the only thing i have left really and i think this is equally valid is that there's just belief you know i believe that luke would not be broken so easily i believe that he would change and evolve but i don't think that he is so weak that he would completely abandon everything he claimed to hold dear as this film portrays him doing and and, you know maybe that sounds wishy-washy but you know people often talk about star wars as a religion and to a certain extent i think that that's kind of a weird inflated way to look at it but the truth is these characters do have, you know, weight. They are, in a sense, like, you know, religious icons. And, you know, to a certain degree, just as, like, if, if you're, you know, very religious, you know, <clears throat> like, your, your kind of personal subjective beliefs about, you know, who Christ was and what he meant are going to, you know, be, you know, very specific to you. I, I think it's the same thing with Luke. And, you know, I can argue this all I want. I can come up with all the reasons why I think it's unrealistic that, you know, Luke would change that much. But 
I just don't believe in it. You know, to quote George Lucas, I don't like it and I don't believe in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I, I don't think that Ryan Johnson earned the the right to, <laughs> to change Luke. I, I think it's fine that the character is cynical and has changed, but you need to show it better. It, it doesn't seem like um, the Luke Skywalker of Return of the Jedi is anything like the last Jedi Luke Skywalker at all. And I get time is past or whatever. But as an audience member, I want to see that more. I mean, a lot of this, too, is, is execution. I mean, how it's done, not just what is done. I mean, for instance, mm-hmm. the flashback where you see Luke contemplating Kylo, killing Kylo while he's in his bed. Luke's words were that, you know, he looked into his mind and saw that Kylo would bring death and destruction to everything he loved. Well, honestly, that's a bit like broad and vague. You know, I would understand Mm -hmm. Luke contemplating killing him if Luke said, I looked into his mind and foresaw that he would murder Han. Because if it's more like, oh, I know this kid is going to kill my best friend. You know, I understand like why that wrath would overtake him for that moment. But because it's so vague it's more like oh luke just looks like an asshole you know he thought about you know murdering a sleeping child you know and it's kind of an obvious thing he walks in and then like uh, you know he uh he walks in and ignites his lightsaber yeah i think there's there's a better way of showing it without being so blatant too yeah you know what i mean i walked into the tin and ignite the lightsaber and oh i better not i have a change of heart because i'm also a good guy i i don't like that that just seems too easy and not that it matters, but my understanding of the Force is that it doesn't work that way. You can't just, like, look into someone's mind and see, you know, what they're going to do in, in the future. I mean, based on everything we've seen about, like, Force visions in the previous film, I, I just don't think that that's a thing. Well, I mean, I think part of the problem, and to borrow a term from card games, is, like, Force power creep. Where, like, yeah. in A New Hope, you know, they have a nice, cute sword fight. And everything after that has gotten cooler. Um, I think I think an issue is the power creep and the idea that, yeah, we don't know about the Force and that there are so many amazing things you can do with it. But it seems like Ryan Johnson is using the Force to advance the story the way he wants to, even if it's not authentic to what we know about the Force. Yeah. And, and I just, like, have a complete... Uh disagreement with how the movie even describes the force and also this goes back to some issues that i have with how the force was described in the force awakens as well but specifically in the last jedi luke says balance powerful light powerful darkness now this is just my personal interpretation my personal interpretation of bringing balance to the force was the idea that the force by itself is perfectly balanced and when the dark side goes strong, it, you know, throws the force out of balance. So I never saw it that, like, balance is, you know, kind of balance between dark and light. And it's funny, I heard a lot of people, like, subscribing to that interpretation when The Last Jedi came out. And to me, that just, like, I don't necessarily think it's wrong. You know, I'm sure there's justifications for it. It's wrong, though, based on my personal understanding of Star Wars and what the the force means. Because... Anakin Skywalker brings balance to the force by killing the emperor. <laughs> so that, I don't think that's like balance between light and dark. That's like extinguishing and Darth the Vader. Dark. Yeah, no, I, I do like that. I like that sort of, I like that point of view a lot because yeah, it's not about sort of like the, there can only be one Highlander kind of thing. Instead it's, you know, if you can extinguish the darkness, um, I'm just repeating what you said. <laughs> Um, I, I like I like that a lot, though. I think that that's a really good view of the Force. And then it makes it so that um, it's more realistic. It's like there's always evil, uh, and that has to be extinguished. That has to be removed, and that's how you bring balance. And so that, that makes it seem like the inevitability of, of more Sith people, more Sith villains showing up uh, makes sense. It's interesting to finally get into this stuff because, you know, ever since we started doing this podcast, I've been thinking about, you know, what are we going to say about The Last Jedi? Because it's it's such a fraught topic. You know, there are you know such strong emotions on both sides. And I think one thing that I really wanted 
to make clear is that you know the, the the people who love the last jedi it's not like they're they're wrong you know i've listened to their reasons i, I think you know they you know have perfectly valid reasons for liking it. it it's just that i feel like we kind of have to get more you know comfortable as fans with the idea of of controversy because i think a lot of you know fans like had this perspective you know on other side of you know saying you know oh you 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 either could not like it for any legitimate reason or you could not dislike it for any le legitimate reason. And I feel like, you know, it's like, hey, we can say we have different interpretations of Star Wars and they can be different and still valid. And I feel like the instant you say, oh, I don't like The Last Jedi, people say like, oh, you're just stuck in your ways. You're just resistant to change. And it's like, yeah. Whoa, hold hold on a second. You know, I, I'm not resistant to change. I'm just resistant to changes that I feel are either bad ideas or are badly executed. <laughs> you know. Definitely, definitely. I I feel like Last Jedi is like the art house movie you watched in high school that you convinced everyone you really liked because it proved you were smart because it was different. <laughs> Uh, that's my, my cynical take on why people like it. And I know that's unfair. And I know there's reasons that people like it. And, and I don't think I could ever convince someone otherwise. But for me, um, yeah, it's definitely uh, in the bottom tier. Uh, and let me think why else. <laughs> we talked about comedy. We talked about Luke. And those are the, the, the two big points. Uh, next thought is uh, Ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think she's sort of the Mary Sue character in a, in a lot of ways. It, she can kind of do no wrong. I, I love the idea of a powerful, you know, uh, female character that's kicking ass, of course. But um, it just seems like she's so attuned to the Force without any training when Last Jedi starts, which obviously I, that's not a Last Jedi movie problem. But I don't know if her journey in Last Jedi is really... Um, uh, believable as far as a force journey, but maybe the Empire Strikes Back had the same problem, so may maybe that's a moot point. Well, I I actually don't think Empire Strikes Back had the same problem, and I'll talk about that. I think this is a point I've, I've made a lot. You know, I'm I'm not someone who thinks that directors can only make movies about people like themselves, but if you're drawing on what you know, I I do certainly think it does help. And I think, you know, part of the strength of the original trilogy is that, you know, Luke is very much a character like George Lucas. You know, just as Luke wanted to get off the farm on Tatooine, you know, George Lucas wanted to uh, get away from his dad's office supplies business in Modesto. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> yeah, mean, yeah. George Lucas understands like that, that kind of yearning of a teenage boy who hasn't figured out his destiny and his purpose and so i think there's a very very intimate understanding of masculinity in the original trilogy and how young men come of age now we get into the sequel trilogy and you know of course it's an ensemble uh journey but at the same time you know how they ultimately uh decided to portray it and, and we can you know debate another time whether this was the right course or the wrong course you know they ultimately decided that Finn was a secondary character and that mostly everything kind of revolved around Rey. So basically, you have a trilogy that's supposed to be about a girl becoming a woman. The problem is, what does J.J. Abrams or Ryan Johnson know about, you know, growing into womanhood? You know, they, they yeah. don't have that understanding, and I feel like they tend to put Rey on a, a, a pedestal. Like, it's almost like they're afraid... To test her, I think it's very indicative that Ray doesn't have a moment where, you know, she doesn't suffer some kind of like like physical ordeal, like Luke getting his hand cut off. Like it, it's almost like they were were kind of shy about really testing her and, and challenging her, and I think that's a problem. And and I I don't think you would have had that problem with a female director. I think say if Patty Jenkins directed the sequel trilogy you would have you know like saw like more intellectual and physical challenges for ray 
Yeah, and just some nuance. Uh, I, I know Star Wars isn't known for its nuance, but uh, there are character moments, especially in the original trilogy, that that work in, in sort of elevating a character, and I don't think Rey gets a lot of those moments. She's yeah. sort of... I think it's a good point. I, I think I would have loved to have seen a woman writer and director, um, you know, work on Ray. Not to say that men can't write women. Like, I, I love what Bo Burnham did with Eighth Grade, which obviously is nothing like Star Wars. Oh, yeah, no, that, that movie's it, I mean, it's sort of yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like proof that, that you, you can write a very nuanced woman as, as a, a straight male, but that doesn't necessarily mean every straight male should yeah, be be writing. Uh... Well, I think the difference is yeah. that, that Bo Burnham has a very very detailed understanding of kids in general. You know, I remember reading a piece about him in the New Yorker, and just they were describing you know Bo Burnham going to a school and talking to the kids, and he completely spoke their language. He was completely on their level, and I, I just. You know, I, I, I don't think Ryan Johnson, you know, understands, you know, young characters quite in that same way. I, I think, you know, he he had a really good portrait of teenagers in Brick, but that was an extremely, extremely stylized kind of, you know, alternate universe, much in the way that, you know, Wes Anderson films almost seem like an alternate version of reality. And, you know, as weird as it says, sounds to say that, like, Star Wars needed to be more realistic than brick i think emotionally it kind of did because like ray is not a character like you know a joseph gordon levitt in brick who's like speaking some kind of weird coded language she's she's supposed to be very accessible very human very relatable and i i, I think there were missed opportunities i agree i think you should leave it at that because i think we could go the whole podcast with it uh, you know, talking about Ray, but um, you mentioned Finn. I think we should get into him a little bit. Oh God, yes. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Number one, um, they definitely uh, downplayed his role in Last Jedi, and I thought that was a shame. And I've talked about it a little bit in in the last episode we did uh, on Force Awakens, but I would have liked to have seen Finn and Poe together a little more. I thought they were setting that up to be a great relationship, and it just didn't come to fruition. Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about the whole Canto Bite thing in, in general, because, you know, the typical Last Jedi hater will basically say, I hate Canto Bite, the whole thing is stupid and pointless. And then a Last Jedi lover always counters with, well, you know, you have to have Canto Bite because Canto Bite is part of Finn's development, you know, from him, you know, growing to being a full-fledged member of the Resistance. But... Like, my problem, again, it's less of, you know, what they did. It's more of how they did it. There's a yes. YouTube channel, a great channel called Lessons from the Screenplay. They did a great breakdown of why Kylo Ren's journey in this film uh, works and why Finn's doesn't. And the point they made is that Kylo's journey is always based around choices. You know, him choosing not to kill Leia, him choosing to take Rey's hand, you know, him choosing to kill Snoke. It's all about, you know, action. Whereas Finn is consistently passive. His journey is based on him listening to speeches that Rose makes and him listening to speeches that DJ makes. <laughs> so it's really <laughs> just, you have a problem because then Finn isn't really doing much of anything. He's just absorbing information and that's very boring. But then also it places an unfair burden on uh, Kelly Marie Tran and Benicio Del Toro because then they're forced to basically just exist as mouthpieces kind of feeding information to Finn. And that's uh, that's very, it's a shame. very because Yeah, they're great actors, and I, I love what they um, started to do. And I think that if they developed the, both those characters a little more, that would have been awesome. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Finn has no agency. He's just sort of bumbling around and is a body that's doing the thing. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to feel really badly for for John Boyega, which, by the way, I uh, wrote about a couple months ago the Steve McQueen anthology Small Axe, where there's a short film in there where where Boyega gives a a really, really, you know, just like potent, indelible performance that you know allows him to show a level of range that that Star Wars, you know, 
never showed. You know, after you know seeing Small Axe, I was like, oh my god! You know, he has a lot of that. You know, same intensity and gravitas that we saw of from Adam Driver in the sequel trilogy that we never got to see from John Boyega because you know the script kind of you know restricted him and didn't give him a chance to show his range. And it's just really depressing when you look like, oh my god. You know, Ray did get to do a lot of cool stuff in all three movies, whereas, you know, Finn, it all peaks in Force Awakens, and it's just, it just gets worse and worse. Like, arguably, he's he's even more useless in Rise of Skywalker than he is in The Last Jedi. What do you think of his suicide run towards the end of the movie? Oh, God, I'm so glad you brought that up, because this <laughs> is like a proverbial punching bag for me. Uh, you know... Like, I did not want Finn to die because I like John Boyega and I don't want to see John Boyega die on screen. But I understood that had he died, had he sacrificed himself, you know, there would have been a sense of completion to his arc. It would have been a valid choice. So I have a real problem with the the moment where Rose, you know, zooms in and knocks him out of the way. Because, you know, for one thing, you know, Rose has been lecturing him the whole movie about basically his commitment to the resistance and then he shows the level of his commitment and all of a sudden she's like no <laughs> and what really really bothers me is what she says she says uh that's how we're gonna win not by uh fighting what we hate saving what we love and then the the battering ram cannon the cannon that he would have destroyed if he'd been allowed to complete his uh flight then opens then cracks open the door exposing the resistance and so just think, if uh, Luke had not shown up, then the entire Resistance would have been massacred and the entire galaxy would have been doomed because Rose didn't want Finn to die. You know, it makes Rose, a character we're supposed to like, look like the most selfish and idiotic person you know, in the film. And it, it just... Okay, she's not more idiotic than Kylo or Snoke, you know, or Hux. But it's just, it's so unfair to make, you know, Kelly Marie Tran, who's, who's very talented, have to deal with that crap and have to say that stupid line. I mean, God, imagine if in A New Hope, Luke had been about to, you know, shoot the proton torpedoes down the, the reactor shaft of the Death Star. And the last second, he was like, you know what? I'm not going to fight what I hate. I'm going to save what I love. And then he just pulls up and the Death Star destroys the Alliance. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it, it's madness. I just, I, look, it just truly drives me insane. This is one part of the movie that I, I just, I don't understand how people can possibly defend that. It's bizarre to me. Well, that sequence bothers me for two reasons. One, they're trying to make Finn a martyr, yet not killing him, which yeah, I think is silly. And two, and I hate podcasts that use this word. I hate it, but I'm going to use it just once. Uh, they use Luke as the deus ex machina. Where yep. Everything is falling apart, and there's no possible way that they could win. And then, wow, Luke cho shows up at the last moment. Um, and, and so for me, that whole sequence just falls flat. Yeah. Yeah, they're all going to die, but I don't think they adequately, like show you the stakes of of what it means for the rebels to die. Like you said, it's a matter of them not doing it right. It's not a ma it's not a matter of content, it's a matter of them not um showcasing the content uh the right way. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is really nitpicky, but I just have to mention this. I feel like in the sequel trilogy there was very lax attention to time you know time was not something that was you know given a lot of thought to like i always loved how in the the a new hope they had very like specific time markers during the fa final battle of you know uh, the the rebel base will be in range in this many minutes and then you know the death star is cleared to fire and you know those time markers made sense where is this this battering ram cannon like i don't understand why the first order doesn't just fire it off the instant they get it down there like they never like have a line of like oh it will take the cannon you know 10 minutes to fully load so it looks like the first order is just waiting while the resistance you know flies those you know junky speeders <laughs> toward them it just 
Yeah, like, what is why? it? Like, is that some sort of flex or something on the first order? Just look how many things we have. Yeah, yeah. It's. It, I feel like you know. I know it like seems maybe silly to kind of obsess over these mechanics, but I think you know the mechanics are really important because they uh, can help establish the stakes, establish the suspense. It's it's just like in the two Terminator films that James Cameron directed. You always understood, you know, how the the Terminator, you know, work. You know, you you had clearly spelled out the the limitations of a uh, liquid metal, where you know, uh, the um, Robert Patrick couldn't just turn into anything; only objects of like equivalent size. And it was mm-hmm. important to have that spelled out, so you know, you didn't just have a free for all in the fight sequences. And I don't know, Last Jedi should have, you know, had like kind of a, a similar parameters established. On December 15, 2017, at 2.17, an article appeared on the playlist.net bearing the headline, Star Wars The Last Jedi Scoring Lower with Audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. Little did I know that it was an early salvo in a grueling saga of rage, hurt, indignation, and bigotry that continues to this day. Both moviegoers who love The Last Jedi and moviegoers who loathe it have tried to simplify the story of its turbulent entry into the Star Wars galaxy. It's a futile task, but that didn't stop anyone from trying. For years, pundits have desperately tried to wrangle the response to the film into tidy narratives that explain anguished arguments ignited by Ryan Johnson. Dominating narratives are, one, Rotten Tomatoes is rigged, two, Last Jedi fans don't understand Star Wars, three, Last Jedi haters don't understand Star Wars, and four, the whole controversy was inflamed by a Russian conspiracy. The Russia theory was promoted by Morton Bay, a research fellow at USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, and it's perfectly plausible. If a foreign power wanted to destabilize America, what better place to strike than at the heart of the Star Wars saga, one of the most enduring contributions to popular culture? Yet I can't help thinking about my own, less official research, which suggests a more complicated reality. If older fans are as immutable as many suggest, why did one of my co-workers, a middle-aged man who first saw the original Star Wars in 1977, repeatedly reject any criticism of The Last Jedi? Even more telling was the reaction of the woman who cuts my dad's hair and her teenage son. The Last Jedi is widely viewed as a feminist film, yet it was the woman who derided it, and her son who defended it. Neither of them fit into the categories in which many a pundit might have placed them. There are many objective truths about the response to The Last Jedi, and none of them are more sobering than the misogyny and racism aimed at the film and its stars. The hate didn't just fill up Kelly Marie Tran's Instagram account. You could find it in the darkest corners of Facebook, where I saw a fake photo of J.J. Abrams wearing a crimson ball cap bearing the legend, Make Star Wars Great Again, and a meme that made it look like Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un were mocking Rose Tico when they shook hands. Bigotry doesn't belong in Star Wars, and neither does delusion. The Last Jedi isn't just controversial. The idea that it is controversial is controversial in and of itself. But whether Star Wars fans admit it or not, the reality is that if you take away the toxic fans, discord will still remain. Railing against The Last Jedi because it values the lives of Rey, Finn, Rose, and Holdo, as much as the lives of Luke and Han, is unacceptable. As for the legitimate debates that surround the film, it's time for both sides to stop demeaning one another and start listening. If you are dead set against Rey being nobody, maybe it's time you reevaluate that revelation. And if you believe Luke was destined to become a grouchy hermit who once contemplated killing a sleeping child, maybe you should consider why some fans found Johnson's portrayal of the character both disturbing and bizarre. I'm not saying that anyone has to change their mind. I'm saying that opinions are meaningless when they come from people who aren't willing to scrutinize their perspective, and I'm saying that Star Wars fans need to get comfortable with controversy. Because if many of the truths we cling to depend on our own point of view, it's not going anywhere. God, that can apply to so much. I I think everybody's a critic. I mean, you and I both have film degrees, but that doesn't mean we're going to be able to sway someone's opinion. In the same way, not to bring politics into it, but that some people might um, shirk science for um, a feeling. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, finding common ground, it's, it was hard enough back in the day, but now with the sequel trilogy and, you know, with the prequel trilogy, um, people, uh, feel so strongly one way or the other. And, and I understand the motion has a lot to do with it. I understand that some people, this is their Star Wars trilogy. This is the first time they went in the theater to see these characters. And that's wonderful. And I, I think these movies have a, a place in, in all Star Wars fans' lives to some degree. Um, but yeah, finding common ground, God, I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'm the cynic here. I like what you're saying. And I think that, I like that you, you mentioned, you know, kind of, you know, film criticism and the, the, the challenge of, of swaying people. And, and one thing that I've really come to believe as a film critic is that my job is not to tell people what to think. And it's not even to tell people what to see. You know, I really feel that my job is simply to, to do what I can to promote the, the most richest, most thoughtful conversation possible. And that means questioning, uh, you know, other people's views. And that means questioning my own views. And to be honest, I have watched The, the Last Jedi a, a lot over the years. I, I saw it twice in theaters. I, I didn't see it as many times as the two that the Abrams directed because I had just kind of a strong visceral reaction against the film when I first saw it. But I, I gave The Last Jedi a second chance in theaters and I've you know watched it many times since at home. And you know I've looked in the mirror a lot and, and asked myself, uh, you know, am I wrong? You know, am I simply, you know, a member of the old guard, you know, clinging to the, the old ways. And the, the reason I'm bristling against this movie is just because I've become, you know, kind of, uh, you know, intransigent that I am, you know, an old man yelling at a cloud, you know, a 30 year old man, uh, but an old man nonetheless. <laughs> but the thing that I keep coming back to is that, you know, even though I, I've come to, you know, to appreciate a lot of things about the film, I, I think the whole, duel with the Praetorian guards and, you know, Kylo's subsequent revelation to Rey. I think that's a beautiful sequence. I, uh, I, I really, really love that moment. I love uh, Luke and Kylo's final showdown. Some of that stuff is just beautifully shot, beautifully staged, beautifully acted. But, you know, I really have, you know, continued to believe that, you know, no, I, I, I still just strongly, you know, disagree with a lot of elements of Ryan Johnson's interpretation of star wars and you know that's okay you know that doesn't make me any less of a star wars fan it doesn't make him any less of a, a star wars fan and we can agree to disagree i think without being like oh you know uh, it, it it reminds me of, of a quote actually from jj abrams where he said that a lot of this dialogue seems to go like it's either exactly as i see it or you're my enemy. <laughs> and I think like that's kind of the mentality like we have to, you know, work beyond in general. Yeah, I mean something that gets lost in the discourse, I think, is that Star Wars still is art. Yeah, it can be lowest common denominator bacon flavored cake art sometimes, but it is art. And people are going to feel whatever they feel and and that's valid. And I think it's healthy to talk about it, but um not when so much vitriol is, is thrown. Not, not when so much uh, bile. Bile. <laughs> not, not when so much negativity and hate is involved, you know? No, I, I think, you know, diplomatic discourse is is always good and is, is always healthy. And also, I, I think, you know, it's worth pointing out that, like you say, Star Wars is art and... You know, all three films in the sequel trilogy are, are you know, the work of auteurs. You know, J.J. Abrams' very personal vision was to, you know, kind of create like a, a show of fealty where Ryan Johnson's, you know, personal vision was to kind of, uh, to use the old Facebookism, you know, move fast and break things. And both of those decisions were, were very personal to those guys. And those, you know, films are very much in, in line, I think, with, uh, you know, what they do. You have the one guy who's kind of reading the Bible uh, very studiously, 
and you have the other guy who's like trying to write the new New Testament. <laughs> In that vein, um, what is something you like about the movie, or what are some things you like about the movie? Oh, I, I just I love pretty much every scene with Ray and and Kylo Ren, and I I honestly. I think it was genius of Ryan Johnson to create the idea of them uh, connecting through the force because I, I'm a really strong believer that in movies that it's important not only for the hero and the villain to interact, but to have, if possible, like multiple conversations where we see contrasting personalities and world views. Because, you know, there's a reason why I think most people's favorite scene in The Dark Knight is the interrogation scene because we love seeing Christian Bale and Heath Ledger just sitting across a table from each other and getting a chance to talk uninterrupted. And I think it was so important to give uh, Ray and Kylo that chance so that, you know, when they actually finally physically meet at the end of the film, there is a, you know, actual emotional weight to uh, that um, relationship. And he's no longer just, oh, the bad guy who killed Han. It's more nuanced. And also, I love the idea that Ray kind of, you know, wants to follow in Luke's footsteps and believes that she can turn Kylo back to the light as Luke did for Vader. And I love the idea that, you know, she's proven to be kind of naive. And by the time she literally slams the door on Kylo's face at the end, uh, she's believes at that point that he's beyond saving. And I thought that was really kind of a, a... tragic and interesting idea the, the idea that not everybody is darth vader not everybody can be redeemed of course that got screwed up in the rise of skywalker but i thought that was a subversion that that actually was really really compelling and i, I definitely applaud that you know that's that's one of the things that like elevates this film you know for all its flaws above force awakens for me because it was it was a really daring thing and i, I think you know i love jj but he never would have gone there agreed uh, in the same vein, I think the uh, action scenes, especially the throne room one with Snoke, are pretty freaking cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't agree with Snoke dying. I have a lot more to say about that, but I don't know if we have time for it. But I will say the action scene itself was one of the more badass uh, lightsaber sequences. It's up there for me with the episode one lightsaber battle. It is for me too, and I just in general really appreciate the way that Ryan Johnson and the cinematographer Steve Yedlin shoot action. Like they have a lot of, you know, kind of long takes and wide shots that, you know, really allow you to get the geography and the choreography of the scene. You know, when I, I rewatched the film the other day, I was looking at the duel between Finn and Phasma, and a lot of that duel is just filmed in like one wide shot where you see the two of them going at it and the the movements are, are so easy to follow. It's just so beautifully coherent you know i wish that you know more uh, big hollywood films would would take a cue from the way they do the action so i and i yeah i, I do think it you know, a lot of it compares favorably to what they did in episode one. Well, we talked about uh cool action we talked about um ray and um kylo ren's relationship and i think generally that really works uh was there anything else you really liked in the film um and you can you say know, no i i <laughs> Well, okay, I, I hate the beginning of the reunion between uh, uh, Luke and Leia. I hate that. I know what you're going to say. I changed my hairline. It's just, it, it's a little too too meta for me. Like, because yeah. everyone knows Leia's hair, you know, I, I just, that bugs me. But in general, I, it was such a joy to see uh, Mark Hamill and, and Carrie Fisher. And, like, honestly, I appreciate that Ryan Johnson gave us that that gift of you know seeing those two actors together because i was so pissed when i saw the forks awakens that we were denied seeing uh, uh han and luke and leia all together again seeing the trio reunited mm-hmm. so at least we got to see brother and sister reunited i think it's a, a beautiful scene it's it's beautifully acted i i think for the most part uh both uh both both you know performances seem very in character there unlike a lot of the luke stuff in the film yeah, agreed, agreed. I feel like we're going to have to table a lot of this for another discussion. We didn't talk Snoke. We didn't really talk Leia and her Force powers. Uh, we didn't talk about Poe, Holdo, uh, Luke dying, yeah, Captain Phasma. 
But I, I feel like um, we, we just need to do another episode about this sometime. We do. We do. We really do. Well, should we do our voices then? <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's time. I'm going to break with tradition and go first. Bring it on. Because I haven't tried this one out loud yet. Um, and also, it's not going to be good. Okay, this, this quote I chose because I, I like what it says more than I like how it's said. But this is Kylo Ren, and he's talking to Rose, and he says, You have no place in this story. You come from nothing. You're nothing. Which I think a lot of fans use as like a meme-worthy sort of representation of that entire character. Uh, so I had to go with it. Yeah, no, that is such a great, great villain moment. That's like Kylo at peak evil. I'm, I'm going to go with the... Uh, a really, really uh, obscure one. Uh, it, uh, the beginning of the Canto Bite sequence, you see that weird, like, floating barge thingy, and, and there are two aliens on there. They're, like, kind of clinking glasses, having a toast. And one of them says, Ah, Blorinky! <laughs> and uh, I've always <laughs> thought that Rinky was uh, a really good uh, addition to the alien languages of... Uh, Star Wars, uh, but perhaps the best written line in, in Ryan Johnson's whole screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> also a great band name. I think if I started as a Star Wars band, uh, Oblo Rinky would be up there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, people are going to be lining up for, for Oblo Rinky and, you know, getting, wanting, you know, Oblo Rinky merch. I can just see it all ahead. <laughs> <laughs> God help us. That's a t-shirt, though. Well, I think that's it for us. Is that is that it for us? Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, so much more to talk about, but I'll I'll save it for another day. <laughs> Me too. Well then, uh, that's our show. Next week we're talking more Star Wars news, and then uh, we're gonna wrap up the Skywalker saga the week after that. You can get in touch with us at bespinicecreampod at gmail dot com. You can find me on Twitter at iamjosho eighty five. Ben can be found on Twitter at T-H-O Bennett with two N's and two T's, as well as T-H-O Movie Reviews.wordpress.com. We also occasionally appear together on the Spidey Scenes podcast, where Ben delves into Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. We're talking about Spider-Man 3 most recently, and uh, it's a doozy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's all for us. Have a great week, and the Force will be with you. Always. Always.